With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brand new marketing partner I want to tell you about today here at Transmedia Worldwide. Absolutely amazing stuff coming from these folks, and they are pretty damn amazing. Go over and give them some of your hard-earned money today. At, I don't even know what the hell this is. We need you to go over to YouTube. Search Best Song Pop Dance 2020 with Alan. Forget about Alan Dagu. He's an idiot. (laughs) We're going to go. He bought a crowdfunding thing. And it was just something to promote his damn music. We're going to go to our guest. Mike, how are you, sir? It's James giving you a call back for your interview. How are you? How are you? Uh, pretty good, actually. Just give me a few seconds. I've got to uh, bring in our other co-hosts here, and we will get everybody set up. We have got a uh, great guest going to join us here in just a few seconds here on our world-famous Jiggy Jaguar Radio broadcast, coast-to-coast and border-to-border on iHeartRadio and also AMFM, 247.com, 50-plus AMFM stations across the country and around the world. If you miss the uh, Sunday radio broadcast, you can uh, find it on the mix each and every Tuesday at uh, at 4 Central. And we have got a great guest we're going to be talking to here today on our big program. we got to get IQ Al Rizzoli and Don Mazzella in here. And, and I believe we may have Don. Don, can you hear me, my friend? I'm here. And IQ, uh, it's ringing his phone. I don't know if he'll pick the phone up or not this week. But uh, we have got a uh, great guest joining us today here on our big program. Sergeant Mike McGrew is with us. He is the co-founder, CEO, and executive director of 911 at East International. And he's with us today here on our big broadcast. You can get more information at uh, SergeantMikeMcGrew.com. And, uh, Mike, you have got an, an incredible story here. Uh, this, this also is uh, an, an, an incredible book as well. You're, you're also here talking about cops and uh, PTSD and, uh, and everything else. So tell, her, t- tell, tell me and Dawn here about A Higher Call to Duty. Tell us about the book. It's, it's a book that, um, that covers a lot of the things that I did as a, as a police officer. I was a police officer in Santa Barbara for 31 years, and uh, I worked major crimes uh, for about half of my career. So that was the robberies, homicides, stabbings, all the worst of the worst of. And then also uh, the other part was working patrol. And uh, I think a lot of people are not aware of the – the trials that first responders go through on a daily basis. And I, I think a lot of the first responders are, are not prepared for the amount of trauma that um, they're going to be exposed to when they enter into that profession. When I came into the um, police force 35 years ago, uh, the Vietnam vets were 
the senior officers, and I feel like they've paid the price for post-traumatic stress injuries. But they were the senior officers, and they would tell you, hey, you're getting a paycheck. It's a tough job, so go out there and, and, and suck it up, you know, and, until you can't. And uh, so, I, so I did that. I, I worked about the first 20 years of my career. I uh, had a lot of very interesting cases that are in the books that it covers homicides and some some pretty significant high-profile pro- cases that I was involved in. But it also speaks about my life um, on a personal level and what the impact of those cases and uh, that career had uh, on me personally. Uh, as a father, I, I, um, I lost my uh, youngest son. He was 12 years old when he got diagnosed with bone cancer and uh, he died when he was 18 years old and I had another uh, son that was involved in a in a pretty significant drug addiction so you know I have a lot of um, experience going through trials that I think um, can hit anybody uh, trauma is not just for first responders anybody can suffer that but um, but I found uh, a way to, to work through all that when I was in a place of hopelessness. And, and for me, it was my faith that turned things around for me. Uh, but but in, the, in the book, it gave me an opportunity to share my story. We all have powerful testimonies, but it gave me uh, an opportunity to share a story of, of how to get hope out of hopeless situations. And, you know, right now across the country, it's a lot of people are, are feeling that hopelessness during the pandemic and the, and the civil unrest. And, uh, and this book speaks to those type of issues in anybody's life. So it, it's been available on Amazon. Uh, it's, it's, it's been all around the world uh, in different places. And, and the feedback from the book is just pretty incredible. People are talking about how they were deeply impacted um, by my testimony about and just sharing my heart and, and, uh, and how I made it through some seemingly insurmountable um, trials, you know, that, they don't stop. I'm still going. Uh, yeah, I retired about three years ago, and, and now I'm dealing with a, a pretty significant uh, cancer battle. But but I have to say that I've ne- never been more excited or fired up um, to um, to go out and serve. Uh, even as as a retired officer, we uh, just before I retired, we, we started a program called 911 at Ease International. And that program was set up to deal with uh, the post-traumatic stress injuries that first responders um, uh, deal with uh, every day and throughout their careers. And uh, it was something that um, was set up to remove the barriers um, and the stigma of reaching out to get help. Um, because before, uh, in the past three decades, the, the, the culture was, hey, don't get help you know it's a sign of weakness or even if you did uh want to get help for um say taking a, a dead child out of a mother's arms you know and and you would have to go to your boss and say hey uh, that call really messed me up and uh and i'm not i'm not doing so hot they would just respond by going okay well give me your badge and your gun and go sit over there and, and we'll see if you're fit for duty so there was a lot of distance in it to, um, to, to get help uh, for post-traumatic stress injuries. And what we were able to do is come up with a formula that uh, it, it works great. It's where the community comes together and raises funds and uh, supports a, a helpline that, that's 
completely confidential. It's, it's something that uh, it's not associated with any EAP program or city or county. And, and, and they can make the call, and they're immediately hooked up with a trauma-trained therapist who understands first responder issues, and it's free of charge to them. So uh, the program began over here in Santa Barbara, expanded throughout the central coast of California. Uh, we began serving more and more first responders, police, fire, paramedics, emergency room personnel, and uh, it's growing across the nation right now. So we're in different places uh, implementing uh, more at ease chapters, and it's something that, that's really bringing uh, just a healthy conversation about the importance of behavioral health with first responders because you know nowadays you hear about people talking about the need for change or you know some type of reform and you know really this is something that uh, is being addressed and and it hasn't been addressed in the past uh, 30 years uh, when I was a cop out here so it, it's an exciting program it, it's cutting edge it's the testimonies of the first responders that are going through it are really impactful um, you know, we've saved lives, uh, we've saved marriages, we've saved careers. And if anybody wants to uh, look at that program a little more closely, you can go to 911aei.org, and there's a website. But it's got a, uh, a video. It's about an eight-minute video on the, on the front page. And that's well worth the watch because it, it, it'll show you the testimonies of three uh, first responders who had to go through some significant um disasters and traumas in their life and and the impact that the programs had um, on those folks so you know we're we're just really grateful that we can play a part in keeping the first responders strong so that they can be the best for their communities when they go out and serve fantastic don do you have any questions my friend oh of course we have many first i'll say thank you but uh um uh, you know, it's funny, first responders, uh, police, et cetera, they're, they're, they're the ones going towards gunshots while everybody else is running away from them. You know, uh, 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 I've been a police reporter, so I know a little bit about what to approve. But I guess my first question is, do you think that the, the world has changed radically from what you started when you started 30 years ago? Um, uh, I grew up in a neighborhood of cops, and it didn't seem that that there was the trauma uh, that they were experiencing when I was growing up that uh, we have today. Do you think that the world has changed and made it more difficult? Yeah, definitely. It's it's significantly worse, especially right now with the with the um, civil unrest that's going across the nation and the anti-police uh, sentiment that is hitting a lot of the first responders going out and doing their job. I mean, these folks are here just in our area. We had uh, five um, law enforcement officers who were shot and wounded, um, taking down an armed and dangerous person. And, you know, they were out there doing this and, and risking their lives and their, their families are, are seeing this and being affected by that incident. And at the same time, um, you know, they can turn on the television and, and see these horrible um, just stories about, you know, telling just painting cops in a bad light. So I, I know that, that that trauma is worse. I, I know that uh, 
it's, it's impacting people right now in a big way. It's impacting the, the folks that are doing the job. You're getting more um, uh, people retiring earlier. Uh, they're leaving the job. You know, there are some um, police agencies that are being defunded. And, you know, what that's doing is, is it's removing officers off the street. And so the officers that are remaining are, are working. They're, they're working overtime. They're stretched really thin. You know, they're working under uh, horrible conditions. And, you know, the job itself is a job that um, unless, unless somebody's really been in there and done it, that people won't understand the impact of some of the things that we have to deal with. There were things that I, that I had to deal with that I couldn't talk to my neighbors. I couldn't talk to my family. I couldn't talk to anybody else because they were just, they were just so horrible. The, the things that we were experiencing and um, it's, it's, you know, that, that's something that, that creates a separation uh, between law enforcement and the public and their families and, and, it's a sign. It's one of the first signs of post-traumatic stress injury that you know um, that that isolation begins, and and then things go down the hill from there. So that's why um, first responders, uh, especially police and fire, have a high suicide rate and divorce rate and substance abuse, uh, alcohol. You know that's, that's pretty prevalent. And um, so I, I would have to say it is worse today. Uh, when I came on, it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't, you know, that the officers didn't experience that. Uh, when I was there, I mean, we still experienced the violence. I've been attacked by every weapon there, including being run over by a motorhome at one point. But it's, um, you know, it, it, it's there. It's real. These people are doing a real job. They're, they are running into those calls of gunfire when everybody else is running out. And, you know, it's... It, just means an awful lot to them to be able to receive support from the community and I think that's why the 911 Addies International program is one of the benefits is that the, the folks who use it um, they're struck that the help is coming from the kindness and generosity of the public and that the public is behind them because there, there's a lot of um, I think police supporters that are not speaking up right now you know, nobody's going to walk down the street with a "I love the police" sign right now, but but they do want to they do want to uh, continue to support you know those people doing the, the the job that puts themselves in harm's way for for their community, and th and this is just one of the ways they can do it. You know, you know uh, in Florida uh, last year when there was a school incident, all they talked about was the of the deputies who didn't go in rather than, than the deputies that did go in. I always thought that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a sad. But let me ask you a different question. I remember sitting around at some grisly scenes, and uh, we used to deal with it with humor um, as a, a way of kind of uh, deflecting a lot of what we were seeing. Do you, do you see that the humor seems to be... Uh, from the scenes I've seen being lost uh, today? Yeah, I, I think, you know, dark humor is something that um, people in, you know, combat or difficult situations will will engage in just to kind of keep, try to keep the, the situation a little bit lighter and keep people's spirits up. But, um, you know, I, I at, at this point, there, there's really not, you know, I mean, 
when I go out there and you're you're dealing with a horrible situation, I, I think most of the times the the cops are just you know they're they're affected by it. You know, to to go deal with a sexual assault survivor, um, uh, you know, somebody a family that lost a loved one to a murder or whatever it might be, it 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 takes a piece of your heart and. And I think that that's something that uh, people need to recognize. You know, we, we think we're tough and we can handle it, but it's just a compilation of that stress that continues to be layered upon layers. And then finally, you know, there, there will be a, a time when, you know, either a person's heart is completely hardened uh, as a defense to it, or a time where, you know, somebody's ready to to be in that place when they're ready to start treating those, those injuries and the traumas that they've been carrying around for so many years. Well, um, let me ask you this question. How do you deal with, what are some of the, of the ways you deal with the post-traumatic PTSD? And, and then when you talk to people, when people are the experts in talking, what if there's some, some of the ways they get the police and other responders to open up? Uh, there's there's different uh, trauma train or trauma mo um, treatment modalities. So uh, we offer clinics that have uh, some equine therapy. We offer one-on-one -on -one therapy with therapists who are trained in things like EMDR, uh, which is uh, it has to deal with desensitizing um, trauma memories through rapid eye movement. And then there's another, uh, just heard of another modality called the brain spotting that seems to be pretty effective as well. But, um, you know, what what the therapists, I think, want to do is get to a place in that person's life where, you know, you can start dealing with the, the woundings that, that we hold. Because a lot, you know, when we're injured, a lot of times we just want to push that down into the unconscious level and just compartmentalize it and say, okay, hey, we're done with that. But... You know, you start doing that over a number of years, and then the next thing you know, um, you can be involved in an incident that just triggers all of that to come back up into that you know, subconscious level where, where it really starts bringing on anxiety and uh, trauma and just, you know, all, all kinds of problems. So um, I think, you know, I'm not a therapist, uh, but we do. Uh, one of the most important things we do in this program is that we vet our therapists out so they do, they do have an understanding of how to um, treat a person that's gone through you know, horrible trauma, but also how to treat first responders because first responders um, deal with things that most normal people will never have to deal with. And uh, a lot of therapists aren't uh, set up for that. The, you know, there was a therapist that I spoke to one time uh, in my journey and I told her my story and, and she just started crying. And so, you know, I knew that that person wasn't you know, equipped to deal with, you know, the type of things that I've experienced or the type of things that I've seen, because even the things we see will surprise therapists and, and catch them off guard when you start to describe the, the scene or, or how it affected you or, or the loved ones around you. Well, what about in the marriage of yourself? I mean, a, a marriage by itself is stressful, but you're adding into all of these, and yes, the divorce rate is up. But what what, what do you think are the factors that, that really put the, uh, asunder marriages uh, first uh, uh, response? Well, I think, 
Yeah, the, the, the marriages are, you know, it's part of that isolation that happens is when the first responder comes home and you've been dealing with, you know, just horrible things all day long. And um, and you come home and, you know, there was a time where I dealt with it, you know, I was on the wrong end of a gun one day and some really um, you know, horrible dead body calls and just, a, just an unreal day. And I came home and my wife was uh, upset because she got plastic instead of paper bags at the grocery store. So it's, you know... It's just like really, there's not a place where I could just sit down and, um, you know, just process everything that happened that day, or, or, or really share that with my spouse, and and so so that isolation can begin to happen, and that's where you just go, well, I don't want to bother them with my burden, so I'll just sit back here and just, you know, um, try to deal with it myself, and and that creates separation, that creates drain in the in the in the whole family, not just. Uh, the marriage, but also uh, with the children too, and uh, you know, and then that happened to me as well. I, I lost two marriages uh, during a 31-year career, and um, you know, until I got to a place where I was able to to learn how to manage the the stress that was coming on me, and and uh, and had the tools to to work through all that. Um, it, it's it's an important program that we. Offered because it also helps the families of the first responders. So we don't just uh, deal with the first responder; we'll deal with their family too, because it, you know that support system needs to be addressed when you have something uh, as serious as post-traumatic stress um, injury in the house. Well, can you tell us more about your your, your ordinance? Well, um, a lot of different ways. Can you tell us a story out of your book? That could really illustrate your point. Um, you know, I I think for me the biggest trauma that I ever had was uh, you know there were several on the job, uh, but but there was uh, it was the loss of my son. He was 12 when he was diagnosed with bone cancer, and we fought it for six years, and then when he was 18 years old, he he um, he committed suicide, and um, for me, it was it was the hardest hit that I could ever that I ever experienced. And um, and I know that this is not new to you know anybody who's lost a loved one. But for me, I I, I took about a month off, and I told God I I was praying, and I said, you know, I, I don't want to go to any more dead kid calls. I don't want to go tell a family member that they lost their loved one. And, um, you know, and I went back to work, I was a patrol supervisor and, and those were all the calls that I got. I get one after another, after another. And I quickly realized that as I was standing on the doorsteps of these homes that, you know, I wasn't there just as the cop. You know, I was, I was, I'd been sent there, um, because of my own testimony and because of, um, the things that I had endured and, and suffered and, and and worked through uh, because of um, because of God, and I, and I'd stand there and and uh, you know the people could they they'd look at me and they they could see right into my heart because it was broken wide open, and they would say well, how how did how did you survive that you know and and so it just gave me a, a place to speak to people at that very. Um, real level, you know, where instead of just, you know, trying to comfort somebody having no idea of what the 
you know, what the pain, the pain that they're going through. Uh, it gave me that opportunity to start to, um, to help people in, in a very special way. And uh, the book covers a lot of incidents where, you know, I was able to just to go out just knowing that, you know, it was more than just a suicide call. It was more than just a robbery call, whatever it was. You know, I knew that I was there for another reason. And it was, you know, I, I believe that, I'd, you know, that God sent me there to, 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 to help another person. So um, several stories about that in, in, in the book. Um, and, and, it, and it also has stories of, uh, you know, I investigated a, um, a significant case where there was a um, St. Anthony's Seminary out here in, uh, in Santa Barbara had it. Uh, had a big problem with pedophile priests. Uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't a believer at that time, but, um, but I, I saw, uh, I, you know, I think God used me to uncover a lot of things that were happening, you know, to bring light to the situation. And, and, uh, you know, it just talks about just how rampant, um, you know how horrible things were going on up in that area but it, it gives light to that you know that's been in the in the media and, and and i was one of the first cases that um started that back in the 90s so so i speak about um speak about that um speak about how it affected me but also how i was able to you know uh, come around and and just um know god in, in, in a special way because of some of the things that I had experienced, you know, that, that turned me away for a while, but, but later on, it was something where I'm just, I, I knew that I, I was there for a reason, you know, and that God loves uh, the Catholic church and there's a lot of great people and great uh, priests and a lot of really, you know, great things that happen there and people being helped with their faith, you know, but, but here I was, you know, a cop just seeing again, just, you know, another bad incident. And, and it just, that it narrows, it narrows a person's view. And I think that's what's happening nationwide right now. And people want to look at um, law enforcement and they want to compare it to uh, the Minneapolis um, incident and, you know, and paint everybody with a bad brush. You know, that's, it's not true. It's not, you know, the, there's for 31 years, I worked with men and women of courage and character who, we went out and did a very difficult job, but they, um, every day, uh, I know that tens of thousands of heroic acts are being done by our uh, first responders out there throughout this country. A lot of that doesn't get covered. There's a lot of restraint that happens. You know, that doesn't get covered um, because it works out peacefully. But, you know, just to put things in perspective, we had... Uh, looked at the past five years of arrests you know, just in this area at the Santa Barbara Police Department. And uh, out of all the contacts, the thousands of contacts, several tens of thousands of contacts, the, um, uh, the use of force rate was less than one quarter of 1%. And so that is pretty much reality. It's not, you know, police work isn't like being on television and it's always, you know, always happening. But uh, it does happen frequent enough, and and I know that um, that there's a lot of folks that understand that, but but it, it's hard to see through um, what's being presented out there if you don't get the other side of the story. 
Well, let me ask you this here, Terry. You were in Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara, to people like me, represents like uh, almost a utopian um, uh, town life. But but you contact, contrast that with Newark or Chicago or even New York City. I mean, um, there's a different level of law enforcement in Santa Barbara versus Chicago. Would you not say that uh, the pressure on Chicago? Yeah, I, yeah. It's, well, you know, we're we're 90 miles away from uh, Los Angeles. So when I was working robberies and homicide, I spent a lot of time down in Los Angeles, uh, just getting gang members that would come up here and hit jewelry stores or kill some of our gang members, you know, I worked a lot of homicides, and so I, I did work with a lot of bigger agencies across the country. And, and there's not much difference. Some may be in working in areas where it's, you know, way more violent and a lot more dangerous. Uh, and, you know, LA's one of those areas, but I have to tell you, every every time I went down to Los Angeles and into some of the, you know, some pretty tough uh, neighborhoods, uh, the the police officers were just more than professional. They were um, really squared away. You know, they were concerned with um, just the safety of everybody, including the the cops and the and the suspects and uh, witnesses. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you can be, you can, you can have a little more. They're, they're going to have more trauma exposure just because of the, the amount of calls that they get. But those calls that they experience are experienced in smaller towns as well. So, you know, over 30 years, um, clearly, uh, drugs have affected the the world, but looks up to Europe. Do you think that um, relaxing the laws will, uh, will ease some of the problems, or just uh, will make a difference? Uh, with drugs, you know, I think uh, that it's 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 making more of a problem, you know, because um, meth and heroin out in California they're basically a misdemeanor now. The, to uh, possess, and so our property crimes went sky high. You know, when people, including the people who were using the drugs, aren't um, you know incarcerated for a period of time to dry out, they'll just you know they'll get a ticket, they'll get booked, get a ticket, be out within 12 hours, and and they're back out looking for um, for more drugs. And the way they buy drugs isn't by um, going to work. You know, there's a lot of theft and for drug sales behind. You know, the people that purchase uh, drugs. So it, it it increases crime. I've seen it. You know, every person with an addiction that I talked to said that, you know, they never wish they wish that they never smoked marijuana and that was the gateway that brought them into it. You know, I know marijuana doesn't take everybody out, but it's just, you know, once that was legalized here in California, it just, you know, it created more problems and, and, and started chain reaction, probably more you know, drug use. Um, with people that were you know, suffering with pretty severe addictions. Oh, I couldn't agree with you anymore, but it, it seems to me that the, well, the sin taxes, cigarettes, booze, and marijuana, um, the, don't ease the problem, but seem to exasperate the problem um, of, uh, of, of uh, law enforcement. What, what do you say? 
Yeah, uh, probably ninety percent of what what I did as a cop was, was drug or alcohol related. You know? uh, just was <laughs> all the violence, um, the you know, drug sales, the, the property crimes, um, domestic violence. You know, there was there always seemed to be you know somebody was using drugs or alcohol, and um, you know drunk driving. It just goes down the list. So. Have to say that, and I'd probably say 80% of what what we did was related to drugs and, and alcohol. Well, you know, Jim, you have to go on and on. I just want to uh, keep keep you from asking questions. Oh, good. What, what's that? <laughs> no, I was talking to Jiggy, but he just usually lets me go. And having someone like you on the program is really. <laughs> well, let's go back to your foundation and talk about. The 911. Can you tell us more about your organization? Uh, and are, are we are we live or are we get, are we being taped right now? We are we are live as live can get, my friend. Okay, gotcha, awesome. Uh, yeah, the reason I asked is because I had an, there's another radio show I'm supposed to be on um, about three minutes ago too. Not 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 uh, a problem. T- tell us about the foundation, then we'll let you get out of here, my friend. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. So uh, the 911 Addies uh, International Foundation is, is, is growing. It's serving our first responders in an incredible way. It's keeping uh, first responders strong so that they can be the best for their community. And, you know, if you want to, if you're interested in starting a chapter in your region or you know somebody that could use some, you know, maybe some help, uh, we're, we're available. And, and you can go to 911 Addies. It's 911aei.org, and you'll get more information there as well. Fantastic. Well, uh, I appreciate you making time for us today. Thanks for coming on and chatting with me and Dawn, and uh, have yourself a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you both for having me on your show. Definitely. Appreciate it, Mike. And uh, there he goes, Sergeant Mike McGrew, and uh, we are back here with... Don Mazzella. Uh, so, Don, what 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 did, what did you make of uh, the sergeant there? Oh, you know, the level-headed uh, 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 represents probably ninety-nine percent of what our law enforcement uh, people are like in this country. Trouble is, the, that message never gets through from this media. You know, uh, uh, I, I, you know, you know what I said earlier. They're the ones that run towards the shots when all of us are running away from them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, think about it, uh, Tiggy. Uh, we, uh, we doing a second one? Hey, I found him. <laughs> are we doing a second one? I had a, I had a guest. Uh, he couldn't do the full 30 minutes or the full hour. So I've got Don Mazzella here, and I figured I would give you a call, Josh. Uh, are no, you? A- I changed oh, shirts for you guys. Look at this. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. There we are. Look at that. <laughs> I, was, um, I was just working on putting together my uh, interview sheets that I do monthly at the end of each month for AMAC so uh, I can get paid. Well, uh, Don... We've got Josh Bernstein with us today. Do you have any questions for Josh? We were oh, we had him we on the. <laughs> uh, he honored me. He sent me an uh, invitation to LinkedIn, which we did. Thank you, Josh. Um, I got about 
eight minutes before I have to get on the uh, air with another interview. But not a problem. Not a problem. Did, we'll you, talk. did, you, did you get my message? If you send me... Uh, I sent it clip. to you via WeTransfer. I don't know Perfect. if you've got, got it yet or not. I'll, I'll look for it because uh, I might even put that up today as but, a second uh, video. One of the things that me and Josh were talking in the last hour, uh, Don, was 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 about uh, this thing with uh, Herman Cain died of COVID, and how they're gonna be using this as oh my God, there's all this craziness. Well, what well, what do you make of this, Don? Well, you know, like Mark Twain's death, greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, no, uh, you know, we we reached the point, yeah. We got a problem, but as, as someone keeps pointing out to me, um, there are more deaths from uh, from flu uh, over the year than there was in COVID uh, uh, so far this year. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, but uh, God knows uh, we should keep you those masks on. But Bernie Sanders has the answer. You know, there is there isn't a problem that Bernie Sanders hasn't figured out that the government should. So he wants to give everybody a mask and have the government pay for it. That's his latest thing. But uh, uh, Josh, but what do you make? Uh, uh, did you see that uh, President Trump uh, said maybe we should re um, delay Election Day? I don't know if you said I, that. I did, yeah. But here's the thing. Number one, it, it can't be done. Number two, uh, you're infringing on the 20th Amendment, which uh, determines the dates of a presidential primary and general election. Yep. And number three, the people that think that if we delay it, that uh, it's going to be Nancy Pelosi. I did some more research, and it won't be President Pelosi. It'll actually go to the pro tempore of the Senate, in this case, uh, Chuck Grassley. Oh he would be he would be the one that would be uh, in control. So a lot of these people that are putting these Twitter hashtags President Pelosi out there, uh, it's not accurate. Um, but here's the thing: what he should do is he should go to the Supreme Court and get an immediate injunction against mail-in voting yeah. throughout the entire country. Yes, that's what he should do. But let me ask you a, a more basic question: Should he have not said anything at all? I agree. He should have just kept his mouth shut. Yeah, this, this is one of yeah. those times where when he said my tweets get him in trouble or re retweets or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he shouldn't have said a word. I, yeah. I agree um, because, again, it's unnecessary. You know, I mean, it, it can't be done. All it does is rile up people, uh, and it's people that want to support him in the middle and things like that, that when they hear something like that, they're like, oh, geez. But on the good side is he just signed an executive order today that is hopefully going to hold uh, these Silicon Valley titans a little bit more accountable, uh, in particular the uh, Communications Decency Act, Section 230. So we'll see if that does anything. Uh, it probably won't, but uh, I don't know. You know um, uh, what do you think of his chances of being reelected? I think without voter fraud, it's mathematically impossible for Joe Biden to win the election. I yeah. think if there's massive voter fraud and if seniors are afraid to go out to the polls because they're worried about, you know, catching the Kung flu or whatever, we could be in, in major danger. And as I said, and, I, and I'm going to continue to say, Americans have fought and died for freedom in every generation. Yes. I mean, they, they stormed the beaches of Normandy. They took back Hamburger Hill. 
You know, they fought in World War One, the Revolutionary War, the you know, the Civil War. They have fought and died to protect freedom and liberty and prosperity. I'm sorry, but if a couple of, you know, seniors can go to the supermarket to buy cabbage, they can stand in line and they can vote. And if some of them die, hey, you know what? It's your sacrifice to this country to preserve liberty and freedom for your children and your grandchildren. That's how I see it. And if I was 75 years old, I would do the same thing because it's that important to vote in person. Could not agree more. Well, what, what do you think about why are these politicians not standing up to these mobs? I guess because they're afraid of their own shadow, they're afraid of being called a racist. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe they think in some way that as long as this keeps going on, it's going to help them with uh, elections. I don't know. There's a number of different uh, scenarios that you could look at there. But, um, you know, I'm glad President Trump is doing something about it. He's uh, distinguishing himself as the clear law and order president, I believe me, uh, people want law and order. I believe that you're looking at maybe 20 to 25 percent of the entire U.S. population that believes what is going on in uh, Portland and Seattle and Chicago and all that is perfectly fine. I think there's 75 percent of this country that says, hell no, I don't want you to defund my police. Hell no, I don't want this violence going on in the country. And again, I think that the polls are reflecting that, number one. But number two, I think that if there's no voter fraud and there's no mail-in voting, then this would be an absolute landslide election. And I'm not saying that to be overconfident or, or apathetic or complacent. I just don't see the American people choosing a 77-year-old man who's been corrupt for 50 years with dementia. I just don't do it. And and again, the Democrat Party, 34% of even Democrats know that he has dementia. 55% of independents, and I think the number was somewhere like 82% of Republicans. I'm not sure why it's 82%. It should be 99.9%. .9%. Clearly, anybody that's looking at this guy can tell this. So I just can't imagine the American people purposely voting for someone with dementia. I just, I can't see it. Yet, if you look at how the media covered the Portland agreement uh, that just been put in place, you would think that the, uh, President Trump has backed down from everything. But it's not true. I and know even, that. Yeah, even the um, the uh, feds were pushing back against that narrative as well. But again, the thing is, is that not everyone is watching alternative media and Fox. They hear it on CNN. The president has backed down. He's no longer going to be in Portland. Oh, geez, that's it. You know, that's all they ever hear. And so they have a monopoly. Uh, that's the challenge. Um, you know, without the left-wing media, this wouldn't even be a, 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 a challenge for President Trump. But of course, when you're lying to the American people on a daily basis, 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, it makes it difficult. So we're going to need what we what, what I'm worried about is I'm worried about on Election Day, seniors that want to vote for Trump being afraid because of the Kung flu. That's what I'm afraid of. I am truly, absolutely scared to death of that. And that really, really worries me because if people go out and they do early voting or if the seniors 
decide, you know what, I'm not going to vote on election day like I always do, and instead I'm going to mail it in because it's safer, you might as well not even vote because your vote's not going to be counted. There's going to be so much voter yep. fraud in this election. I would love for anyone to go to President Trump and say, what is it specifically, specifically, that you are doing right now to make sure that the integrity of the voting process is intact and that this is a fair and free election. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about a wall. I don't care about arresting deep state idiots. I don't care about taxes. I don't care about the economy. I don't care about anything other than what are you doing specifically to secure that this election is gonna be fair and free of, of uh, fraud. That's it. That's the only question every single American should be asking. Read wholeheartedly. Yes. Read more. Well, uh, well, well, Josh, I know you've got an, another radio thing you've got to go do. Before we let you go, uh, how do we get a hold of you online and give us some information on AMAC while you're here? Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Josh Bernstein. You can go there. Um, I speak the truth, obviously. People don't like that, so... I've been demonetized for almost four years now. Um, you can also go to, of course, uh, Roku Television. My show is on Roku TV as well. It's on Amazon, Amazon Prime, Fire Stick, uh, and then, of course, YouTube. So you can just go to the YouTube channel, The Josh Bernstein Show, and uh, you can see the show there as well. So. Fantastic. And, uh, of course, you're a representative for AMAC. Uh, give us some details on AMAC before we let you go. AMAC is an amazing organization. Um, it is the conservative alternative to AARP. They've got all the same types of products and services that AARP would offer, but the main difference is they're not interested in top-down, government-centered healthcare solutions. They're more interested in free enterprise, limited government, um, small business, uh, you know, oriented type of things, and smaller healthcare programs that give more freedom and more choice to the seniors and uh, for healthcare choices. So check them out at amac.us or you can call them toll free at 888-262-2006. Again, 888-262-2006. Tell them you heard about AMAC on the Jiggy Jaguar program and they'll even give you a free one year membership. Fantastic. Well, Josh, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, stepping in here in the clutch, my friend. I appreciate it. <laughs> No problem. Thank you, sir. There he goes, Josh Bernstein. And uh, so, Don, what, 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 what do you make of what Josh was saying? Um, couldn't agree with him more. I always love, love having him on the show. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, what can you say? Because there's, uh, you know, he speaks of, of, of sense, which in this society today we, we have very little of. It, uh, it, it really reached the point. You know, you know um, uh, uh, finally the media is starting to talk, thanks to the Marcy Klein uh, letter uh, resignation in the New York Times. They're finally uh, starting to talk about the fact that uh, um, people are saying we should not uh, have discussion, but rather uh, talk about the perceived truth. And, uh, you know, it's, re it's really scary uh, what's going on out there. And um, dissenting voices are, are, are being silenced to the point where uh, it's scary. And 
it's ironic because if you, when I was growing up and when I was uh, uh, younger, uh, all the liberals talked about was how they were uh, uh, they were out there talking in the wilderness, but they were talking and no one said they couldn't talk. But here they're saying, <laughs> you know, uh, but here they're saying uh, if you're conservative, you can't talk because you're. Uh, what you're saying uh, is uh, wrong and hurtful. You know, that's a new word, hurtful. You know? Uh, I sit there and say, you know, all of us have had hurtful things in our life, but that's part of living. Um, it's scary. It's really scary. Yes. And, and you know, uh, these politicians uh, uh, in, in all these towns, uh, they're all democratic machines for years. They, they've shortchanged their uh, the blacks. The blacks are complaining, but they're not they're not turning out the uh, uh, the leaders that uh, put them in the situation. They want to turn out the leaders that are trying to do something about it. Um, um, today's Wall Street Journal had an interesting thing. Biden has uh, on his platform says that. Uh, um, uh, uh, charter schools, which help uh, blacks and Puerto Ricans and Latinos more than any other uh, thing to educate them, um, should be derailed. That's what the, the platform called for, a stop to the Federation of Teachers. And, and you know, it doesn't make sense. Our, our schools fa are failing, are failing uh, blacks and, and Latinos. And uh, here, here they are, the Democratic Party, which, by the way, should be banned because it, it supported slavery if you, under the new rules. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I give that congressman credit. He said in Congress, you know, uh, they're, they're complaining about everybody. They took the statue of Christopher Columbus down in the middle of the night in Chicago. <laughs> I mean... What's going on here does not make sense. And, and uh, well, it makes sense if you um, want to destroy uh, our culture and our heritage, which is what the, this is all about. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking, you and I are talking to the choir here because we all agree. But it, but it's really sad. Um, you know, you know the, I'm a lot, I didn't get my Sunday New York Times today for the first time. You know, and I didn't miss it. That's sad. You know, because I've been reading it since 1962, every day. And the fact is, it's become such a, um, it's no longer saying the truth. And, and that's sad for journalism. Because if we don't talk about the truth, and uh, as we see it and put out to our people, we're doing a disservice to this country. Uh, and, um, and you know I feel how I feel about that, Jiggy, and uh, I keep coming back to it because each day you and I see more and more examples of people shouting this down, and that's not—it's uh, not good for the country. No. Uh, no, it is—it is definitely not. Uh, we've got Don Mazzella with us today. And uh, so, Don, what, what do you make of this VP thing with Biden? Is he who's who? You think he's gonna pick? 
Yeah, I don't think he knows. <laughs> no, you know, they, there's a calculation there. And they know that if they pick a black woman, uh, they're going to lose 20% of their vote. Uh, uh, because everybody knows whoever the VP is, is going to be president. Because uh, Biden is not going to survive four years. Yeah. No one. Um, so they're, they're really going to see. Uh, and again, um, what I heard, uh, don't, please don't let it be, but they're really thinking of putting Michelle Obama on the ticket. Uh, uh, they, they really, there's a, there's a tremendous pressure to put her on the ticket. Uh, wow. And, uh, uh, it, it would be a horrible, horrible mistake what the, for the Democratic Party and for the country. But uh, uh, they really don't know. They painted themselves in the corner. They say they should be a black woman. But they know it's, it's the wrong move. And the only one that makes sense is Amy Nalbacher of, uh, of Minnesota. But once they said black, they couldn't put her on the ticket. But she would be the, the best candidate. Um, um, because she's acceptable to more people. But uh, uh, anyway, that's not a long answer to that question. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I've you know, been looking at it. Um, uh, it won't go well in the South. Uh, they, uh, they think they can pick up the, the uh, suburban women vote but uh, then a lot of women are going to uh, start off short because if you put a, someone radical in, anyway, give, give me another question. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is Don Mazzella. He's with us today. He uh, joins us live each and every week. And uh, so th there, there is a lot going on with, uh, and, and we talked about it with Josh earlier, uh, this election situation. Um you know, this, this this is just insane that he would uh, he would float something like that. You mean about the uh, about the moving election? moving the date? Yeah, yeah moving the date. Yeah. Sometimes the president Trump should keep his mouth shut. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. You, you know, if you look at again, I keep coming back to the fact that there is no president in the last 50 years or since the Ronald Reagan that has delivered more on his campaign promises than uh, 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 Donald Trump. No one. If you look at his record, and if, 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 you know, if that had been an Obama record, you, they'd be putting him up for sainthood. But, uh, but if you look at what he said, what he's going to do, Supreme Court, tax cuts, um, uh, uh, everything he said he was going to do, he's done. Uh, and, yep. if I, uh, and if I, I had been, if it had been me, uh, I, I would have walked. Uh, I would have done what George Washington did: did get up and go home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I had always thought that at the convention he would he would um get up on stage and say, hey, I've had enough of this. Have fun with Pence. 
but since there is no convention, I <laughs> I don't know what they're gonna do. Um, that's true. You, and you want to know something? Uh, it depends on winning in, in a walk. Um, because uh, if it was Biden and Pence, these winners, Pence and winning a walk. Because people. Oh yeah. Because um, uh, because basically Biden is an anti-Trump vote. Yeah. His program, he has an articulated program. You you vote for something, you don't vote against it. And but uh, right now it's against. And if the polls are right, and I don't know whether they are or not, um, Trump is really gaining in, in key battle battleground states. Now um, I can make a poll and say anything I want to. <laughs> you know? Well, uh, well, Don, as we wrap up here with you, my friend, uh, how do we get a hold of you online and, and tell us a little bit about all your projects? Well, first of all, where's IQ? I don't know. This is the second week in a row he's vanished. I don't know where he went. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was just worried he got mad at you and me, but uh, anyway. Who knows? I'll send him an email and see what happens. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll see. The-nres.org, uh, uh, which is what really where we want to be, the National Robotics Education Foundation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.